Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 10, Panhellenism. Was there ever such a thing as Greek religion? It may be an odd question to begin this episode with, but it should be absolutely clear from the start that Greek religion, as a monolithic entity, never existed. When Greece emerged from the Dark Age, different communities had developed in very different social, political, and economic ways. And this development was reflected also on the religious level. Every city had its own pantheon, in which some gods were more important than others, and some gods not even worshipped at all. Every city had its own mythology, its own religious calendar, and its own festivals. No Greek city, then, was a religious clone. Yet the various religions overlapped sufficiently to warrant a resemblance. But in the 8th century BC, Greek religion was strengthened by poets like Homer and Hesiod, who produced a kind of religious highest common factor by inventing, combining, and systematizing individual traditions, which were then spread orally via performances at local gatherings and Panhellenic festivals. The two basic features of Homeric worship can be traced back to the old Mycenaean Minoan religion. These are polytheism, or the worship of many gods and goddesses, and the ritual ways of honoring the gods, with sacrifices, prayers, processions, music, dancing, and hymn singing. Sacrifices themselves, the central event of Greek religious rituals, were performed before crowds in the open air, on public occasions that involved communal feasting afterwards, on the sacrificed meat. Like the other Mediterranean religions, Greek religion was formal, ritualistic, and communal, not private and meditative. But unlike some, it never developed an official set of doctrines, or compulsory beliefs. So different and contradictory ideas about the gods coexisted comfortably in Greece. The Greeks, like the majority of ancient societies, were polytheistic. Their deities embodied the forces of nature. Zeus, in effect, was the sky and all of its phenomena. But what separated them from the Egyptians, for example, was their belief that the gods were the same race as them, known as anthropomorphism. They portrayed them as idolized men and women, with special powers to control and direct nature. All aspects of nature were endowed with human form. The woods, mountains, sea, rivers, and springs were inhabited by countless spirits imagined as beautiful maidens or youths. Even emotions and behaviors, such as fear, pity, hate, and so forth, were all perceived as divinities in human form, who had come into being through procreation like the rest of the cosmos. In their totality, the gods, nature spirits, and abstractions represent the whole of being, The diversity of the supernatural realm offered the Greeks a satisfactory way of ordering and explaining the baffling complexity of human experience, from the vast mysterious universe of stars and planets, to the benign and hostile world of nature, to the confusing inner world of the human psyche. The divine world thus mirrors the human condition. During the Dark Age, in the realm of religion, there is both continuity and discontinuity. As we discussed before, the names of various gods found in the Linear B tablets would become some of the Olympian gods. On the other hand, many of those did not survive the Dark Age. 
The general manner of worshipping and placating the gods through prayer and sacrificing gifts remained much the same. However, religious worship was no longer centered on the palaces, but was diffused among the villages, and many of the cults and festivals for specific deities were thus founded. Ideas about the nature and personality of the gods probably also changed. The conceptual basis of Greek religion was found in myth, or stories, about the gods and their relationship to humans. Although many of the myths about the gods and heroes that formed the core of later literature and art originated in the 14th and 13th centuries BC, others were probably adopted or assimilated from the Near East during the Dark Age, as the Greeks heard stories from foreign traders passing through. For example, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of erotic love, was not found in the Linear B tablets, and she may have been modeled on the Semitic love goddess Astarte, or Ishtar, and one of Aphrodite's lovers, Adonis. The Semitic Adon, meaning Lord, is clearly Near Eastern. By the 8th century BC, as represented in Homer and Hesiod, the Greek pantheon essentially had attained its final form. There will be additions when we get into the Hellenistic period, but there will be more on that much later. As a quick recap of episode 2, there are 12 Olympian gods that also have an equivalent Roman counterpart, since the Romans attributed the source of their deities to the Greeks. This large pantheon of sky gods were the offspring of the earth and the heavens. They defeated their parents, known as the Titans, in a great battle that marked the beginning of the world. They then made their home atop Mount Olympus in the northeastern corner of the Greek mainland. The Greek gods had supernatural powers and immortality, and each were responsible for a particular aspect of life. But they were also subject to the same faults and weaknesses of humans. For example, the king of the gods is Zeus, who is often depicted holding a thunderbolt. He married his sister Hera, who is the goddess of marriage and children. He cheats on her numerous times and has a number of illegitimate children that would become the heroes of Greek legend. Their brothers are Poseidon, the god of the sea, who is often depicted holding a trident, which is a pitchfork-shaped staff, and Hades, the god of the underworld, though he is not considered an Olympian god since he doesn't reside on Mount Olympus. Their sisters are Demeter, the goddess of agriculture, and Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. Ares, the god of war, is the spirit of bloodlust that enters a warrior and makes him eager to kill and destroy. He is the son of Hera and Zeus, and the lover of Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and beauty and represents the irresistible force of sexual desire. She's technically Zeus's aunt as she was born from the mixture of Oronos's castrated genitals and sea foam and brought to the shore on a large seashell. The patron deity of Athens was Athena, the virgin goddess of practical wisdom and tactical warfare. She sprung from the head of Zeus fully armored. Whereas Ares represents the bloodlust of warfare, Athena represents the tactical approach to war. In the same vein, she also represents the sphere of practical wisdom, such as weaving, carpentry, metalworking, and technology in general, while Apollo's wisdom extends to music, poetry, literature, philosophy, and medicine. His twin sister is Artemis, the virgin goddess of the moon, hunt, and wild animals. They were the children of Leto and Zeus. Artemis, like Athena, is a perpetual virgin, but whereas Athena is a friend and helper of warrior heroes, Artemis shuns all contact with males and lives in the forest as both hunter and protector of animals. 
the trickster Hermes, the messenger of the gods, was the son of Maya and Zeus. Hephaestus, the lame god of metalwork and the forge, was either the son of Hera and Zeus, or was the result of Hera's attempt at having a kid by herself, after Zeus had Athena. Homer and Hesiod differ on this. Dionysus, the god of wine and drama, operated as a mortal woman at times. He was the son of Semele and Zeus, and was a later rival to the Pantheon, but became rapidly and widely accepted. There were also a number of minor divinities, like Pan, a goat god of shepherds, and Eros, the son of Aphrodite and a child god of love. This was a very brief overview of the Greek Pantheon. I plan on going into way more detail in future episodes when we touch upon the various Greek cults, and I mean episodes because it's probably going to take two or three to cover them all, if not more. But I want to hold off on that until later, say when we draw closer to the classical period, when all the different rituals and festivals have been firmly established. These gods and goddesses were very important to Greek daily life, and many of their myths show a dysfunctional family, with petty jealousy, feuds, and fights. In Homer and Hesiod, these powerful divinities look and think exactly like humans. Their actions are just as unpredictable. They often interfere in human affairs, and many are quite openly on one side or the other in the Trojan War. Zeus, the father of the gods, is for the most part neutral, although he is on the side of Achilles against Agamemnon. The gods are not judges of morality. They are often shown to be just as immoral as humans. Men fear and respect their supernatural powers. The gods become annoyed and use their powers against humans if they are insulted or dishonored. In their dwelling place, at the top of Mount Olympus, the gods banquet, have love affairs, plot, quarrel, mock, and deceive each other, just like human beings. But their infinitely superior powers, and the fact that they are immortal and ageless, and never subject to pain, obviously set the gods apart from mortal beings. Mortals, called hoi thanatoi, literally meaning the ones who die, are the playthings of the gods, called hoi athanatoi or the deathless ones. This complex intersection of the internal divine and mortality lay at the base of all later Greek philosophical and scientific speculation about the order and structure of the universe and the human condition. The Greeks had no concept of natural rights that were given to them by the gods. Instead, they believed in the dominance of chance and random fortune. Good things didn't always come to those who deserved it. The Homeric heroes are often referred to with epithets, just as the gods. Some hero could be called Dios, or godly, Diotrephus, reared as a god, Isothesos, equal unto a god, and so forth. This is an extraordinary claim that the Greeks made, especially for mortal human beings. This is part of the arrogance that is characteristic of the ancient Greeks but nonetheless, a Greek characteristic from the very beginning. Furthermore, the Iliad and the Odyssey both begin with an accusative noun, menin, meaning anger, and referring to Achilles in the Iliad, and andra, meaning man, and referring to Odysseus in the Odyssey. Thus, both start out talking about the deeds and extraordinary lives of two individual men. Furthermore, the Aeneid of Virgil, which of course was based on the Iliad and the Odyssey, begins... I sing of arms in the man. The man, of course, is Aeneas. This all contrasts sharply to the Christian Bible, which begins with the word God. This is because, as we will come across time and time again, 
The center of Greek thought was focused more on human achievements instead of divine will. To combat this, the Greeks had a concept called hubris, which can be best translated as arrogance. Hubris occurred when a man had a notion of himself, approaching divine status and acting accordingly. The gods didn't like this, so they had to check them. So they dispatched the goddess Ate, meaning moral blindness. The hubristic man could no longer think straight, and he would cause harm to himself. Thus he is struck by Nemesis, the god of retribution. One of the most famous examples of this was Oedipus Rex, written by Sophocles in the 5th century BC. Oedipus became too confident in his abilities and ignored the warnings of the gods. So one day, he discovered that as a young man, he killed his father and later married his mother. Nemesis inflicts him, causing him to tear out his eyes. He spent the rest of his life as a blind beggar, after being a great king of Thebes. Essentially, the Greeks believed in acting in moderation. You can be proud of yourself, but don't go beyond the limit of being human, or you will receive terrible things. Thus, there is an eminent contradiction in these two worldviews. In order to seek the human experience, one must be the greatest possible man, but he needs to have sophrosyne, or moderation, in his actions, so as not to anger the gods. The Greeks worshipped the gods out of awe for their power to do them good or harm. The gods demanded that their power be acknowledged through gift-giving and other marks of respect. Mortals gave these willingly and in abundance, because of their fundamental conviction that the gods were disposed to help and protect those who honored them, though realizing at the same time that these impulsive deities might do just the opposite. Avoiding the gods' opposition was just as important as winning their support. Every community had its special protecting god or goddess, and spared no expense or effort in honoring them in order to keep their favor. After the Dark Age, the Greek city-states would lavish on the gods gifts of public land, huge temples, expensive private dedications, festivals in their honor, and thousands of sacrificed animals. This religion was more concerned with rituals than morals. What was important was to make the right sacrifices, to the right god, at the right place, with the right words. If you did, as Plato complained, you could be wicked and get away with it. Of course, good behavior was desirable, but it was more for the sake of your family, friends, and fellow citizens than for the gods. In Homer, the gods' concern with morality, as we understand it, is limited. Certain acts, such as incest or homicide, were thought to pollute the perpetrator, who must be ritually purified before being readmitted into the society. There were also dozens of other minor taboos, such as touching a corpse, which polluted you for a few hours or days. But most deeds that are condemned by the major modern religions as sins against God, such as stealing, adultery, and rape, were not concerns of the Greek gods. As far as interpersonal behavior is concerned, the gods in Homer primarily condemn only oath-breaking and the mistreating of strangers, suppliants, and beggars. Oaths, which were taken in the names of the witnessing gods, were especially important because they sealed the contracts between individuals and between communities. A few times, however, the gods of Homer do show some concern for fairness and justice within the society, at which point Zeus is said to send severe wind and rainstorms against those who make crooked decrees. Beginning with Hesiod, the idea of Zeus as the upholder of justice would become an increasingly common theme in literature, 
Epic poetry portrays the Greek tragic view of life. In many religions, earthly sorrow and suffering are eased by the promise of a paradise after death for those who have lived righteously. The Greeks did not have this solace, as they didn't see the afterlife as a place of happiness, nor did they see it as some tormenting hell either. Their concepts of a personal afterlife remained rather neutral. For most Greeks, existence, in any meaningful sense, ended when the soul, or psyche, left the body and fluttered down to Hades. There is some punishment of sinners in Hades, but it is reserved for those who have insulted or tried to trick the gods, such as Tantalus, who was forced to stand forever in a pool of water, with a branch of grapes dangling above his head. He was dying of thirst and hunger, but every time he reaches for them, the water and tree branch would recede. When Odysseus goes into Hades, he runs into Achilles, who tells him that it is better to be the lowest person on earth than a king in Hades. Later, however, through the influence of mystery cults, such as the worship of Demeter at Eleusis, and a philosophical speculation, ideas of a blissful afterlife for the morally good and eternal torment for the bad would become more highly developed. But unlike Egyptian religion, for example, whose primary concern was for the afterlife, Greek religion was much more concerned with the here and now, and placation of the gods for special favors through formal rituals. As in the Mycenaean period, there were special priests and priestesses who had care over the special prayers and rituals and sacred objects that made up the cult of the god. There was never, however, a professional priestly class set apart from the rest of the people, as in the Near East and Egypt. Greek priests and seers did not dress or live differently from other citizens. Their official duties generally took up very little time and required little in the way of preparation and training. Priests and priestesses came almost exclusively from the upper ranks of society, and a large number of priesthoods were hereditary within a single lineage. Priesthoods increased the prestige of the leading families and thus elevated their claim to leadership positions, but the office itself held little political authority or economic gain. During the 8th century BC, there was the beginning of monumental architecture by means of widespread construction of great religious temples. The earliest known examples were small, with mud brick walls, wooden columns and thatch roofs, and looked very much like regular houses. But on the island of Samos, the Haran, or Sanctuary of Hera, developed a few decades later and its rectangular temple to Hera was the first to make a clear distinction between divine and human houses. Although still made of the same materials as earlier models, it was several times larger at about 100 feet compared with the 25 feet of before. Sometime later in the century, a wooden colonnade, or peristyle, was built around the temple, and the building assumed the form of the Greek temple as we know it. Although it was still a rough prototype of its classical counterpart, this was a very major thing, differing greatly from the sanctuaries in Bronze Age Greece. At Mycenae, cult buildings were small and conspicuous, having just altars and shrines. But now the temple was an enormous focus in the community, both physically and civically, which led to a competition in temple building between the Greeks to increase civic pride and gain divine favor. By 700 BC, there were dozens of major and minor temples built along similar lines in all parts of the Greek world. The appearance of large temples shows that people wanted to 
and were able to spend their wealth, time, and labor on projects that gave honor to the whole community. Also, there was an increase in dedications to sanctuaries, since some people had more money than they ever had before. In Athens at this time, expensive votive offerings placed in the Temple of the Gods, most notably bronze tripods and cauldrons, figurines and bronze dress pins, greatly exceeded the amount of metal wealth found in upper-class burials. This increase in temple offerings also corresponds with the decrease in amount of valuables left in tombs. With all of these social changes, which we will cover in the next few episodes, The elite were under a lot of pressure to dispose of their wealth for the city rather than the traditional manner of burial for private use. However, religious dedications also helped to promote them and their families' prestige even more. So instead of waiting until death to show off their family's wealth in tombs, they decided to do it while living and enjoying their family's fame. Furthermore, it was also a way of showing off to the whole of the Greek world Thus, sanctuary dedications were a pious religious observation, mixed with social promotion for the elite. A pattern was well established that was to hold throughout Greek history. Temples often contained statues of the gods they housed. This combination of temples and cult statues was a new development, and the growth of temples and public ceremonies that grew up around them, including public feasts, implies the existence of well-organized communities with significant resources at their disposal. In addition, a number of the sanctuaries were located in the countryside, away from the population centers. Many see these developments as a sign of growing civic unity, a deliberate strengthening of the religious bonds for the purpose of more firmly uniting the demos. Religious processions from the central town to the royal sanctuaries symbolically connected its inhabitants with the inhabitants of the outlying villages. The temples at the borders of the territory also served to stake out the territory of the demos against any territorial claims from a neighboring demos. Thick brick and stone defensive walls, another major architectural feature of Greek towns, first appear in Greek Asia Minor and the Aegean Islands. Smyrna had an impressive circuit wall by around 850 BC. Iasis, down the coast in Caria, was walled before 800 BC. A number of Cyclotic island sites were also fortified in the 9th century BC. On the mainland, however, the earliest circuit walls date to a little before 700 BC. The increasing number of defensive walls possibly indicate that all-out warfare between communities, as opposed to raiding expeditions, was growing more important, and also attests to the growing wealth and communal pride of the communities. Hand-in-hand with this was the sense of a common Greek identity called Panhellenism. Pan means all, and thus it meant all Greekness. Also, the Greeks became more consistent in the name that they called themselves. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, they were referred to as Danaeans, Achaeans, and Argives. By the 8th century BC, coinciding with increased contact with the Near East, the Greeks became more conscious of the cultural differences between themselves and non-Greeks. Most began to refer to themselves as Hellenes, and differentiated themselves from the Barbaroi, or Barbarians, who got their name because they did not speak Greek. When Homer describes the Carians, allies of the Trojans, he calls them Barbarophonoi, or strange-speaking, since everything that came out of their mouths sounded strange, 
like barbar, to the Greek ear. Thus, we see the early stages of Panhellenism, the notion that despite their quarrels, there was much to unite them as well, as they all belonged to a single cultural group, sharing the same heritage, language, customs, and religion. The 8th century BC also saw the rise of religious sanctuaries, shrines, and festivals that were not merely local, but were Panhellenic, and reinforced the idea of being Greek. The most famous early Panhellenic sanctuaries were those of Zeus and Hera at Olympia, of Apollo and Artemis at Delos, and the oracles, or places of divine prophecy, at the shrines of Zeus at Dodona, and of Apollo at Delphi. They attracted visitors from all over the Greek-speaking world. These sites are believed to have been founded at some point in the Late Bronze Age, but really took off in the 8th century BC in terms of Panhellenic importance. Eventually, they would become large complexes of temples, treasure houses for the depositing of gifts, and holy precincts. The worshippers who came to the Panhellenic festivals participated in common rituals and sacrifices to the gods, and at some sanctuaries, they took part in athletic contests as well. The first and most prestigious of these athletic games was held at the great festival of Olympian Zeus at a rather remote site in the northwestern Peloponnese. The place is now called Olympia and was controlled by Elis. The festival took place every four years. An Olympiad was not only the name of the event itself, but also of the period between the games. In this way, the Olympiad became a unit of time in history and provided a common chronology for events in ancient Greece, since every city-state had its own calendar and started dating from the year they were founded. The Olympiad also took the name of the winner of the first and only event, the foot race. Other events would be added later. Initially, the Olympic Games were only patronized by local competitors. For instance, the winner of the first Olympiad is a man named Corobus of Elis. But by the end of the century, dedications were being deposited in the sanctuaries of Zeus and Hera by the Spartans, Athenians, Corinthians, and Argives. By the 6th century BC, contestants and spectators would be drawn from all over the Greek world. In this way, the Olympic Games helped to foster this forging of a common Greek identity. The origin of the Olympics is shrouded in mythology, and competing legends persisted as to who actually was responsible for the genesis of the games. According to one legend, Heracles established the games to honor his father Zeus after he had accomplished one of his twelve labors, the cleaning of the stables of Augeas, the king of Elis. Heracles had changed the flow of the Alpheus River to wash out the stables, and that area was then dedicated to Zeus. Another legend attributes the games to Pelops, the grandfather of Agamemnon and Menelaus. The story goes that he wanted to marry Hippodamia, the beautiful daughter of Onomaeus, the king of Pisa, a neighboring city of Elis, but the king would only wed her off to anyone who could best him in a chariot race. Since he was given an oracle that he would be killed by his own son-in-law, Onomaeus stipulated that all challengers who lost were to be executed, which kept a lot of people from competing. Furthermore, the king's chariot horses were a present from the god Poseidon, and were therefore supernaturally fast. In order to work around this, Pelops convinced the king's charioteer, named Myrtilus, to help him. 
In return, he offered him half of the kingdom. So he replaces the bronze linchpins in the chariot with wax ones, so that during the race, the friction caused them to melt and thus the wheels popped off, plunging Onimaeus to his death. Pelops was proclaimed the winner and thus could marry Hippodimea. Possibly regretting his offer, or seizing an opportunity to remain blameless, Pelops seizes the chariot and tosses him over the cliff to his death. As he fell, Myrtilus invoked a powerful curse on Pelops and his lineage. As we have seen, that curse came to fruition with the affairs of his grandchildren. In any event, after his victory, Pelops organized chariot races as a thanks to the gods and as funeral games in honor of King Onomaeus. In order to be purified of his death, it was from this funeral race held at Olympia that the beginnings of the Olympic Games were inspired. Another legend states that the Olympic Games, regardless of who originally founded them, had fell into discontinuance and then were revived. Like Hercus of Sparta, there will be much more on him later, and Iphitus of Elis, a city also in the northwest of Peloponnese near Olympia and Pisa, traveled jointly to the Oracle at Delphi to ask how to get the Greeks to stop fighting each other after a plague had ravished the country. The oracle instructed them to restore the games in order to end the plague and usher in a time of peace. In the 2nd century AD, Pausanias saw on the temple of Hera a disc that commemorated this treaty, with only the name of Iphitus inscribed on it. And Plutarch writes about a treaty between Iphitus and Lycurgus. It's difficult to say if this actually happened, though, or if it was the version given by the Aeleans. Regardless, the pattern that emerges from these legends is that the Greeks believed the games had their roots in religion, that athletic competition was tied to the worship of the gods, and the revival of the ancient games was intended to bring peace, harmony, and a return to the origins of Greek life. The most widely accepted inception date for the ancient Olympics is based on inscriptions found at Olympia, listing the winners of a foot race held every four years starting with 776 BC. Although this date cannot be proven, it is not impossible for it to have started by then. For instance, Homer has a description in his Iliad about the funeral games of Patrocles that mirror some of the customs of the Olympic Games. He says, For swift charioteers, Achilles sets forth good prizes, a woman to lead away, one skilled in good handiwork, and an eared tripod of 22 measures for him that should be first. Then he set forth prizes for grievous boxing, and other prizes for a third contest, toilsome wrestling. So, some scholars think that Homer was written down after the Olympic Games had been established, and projected Patrocles' funeral games based on the actual happenings taking place at the Olympics. In any event, we will cover the Olympics, as well as the games established at other sites, in much greater detail in future episodes as I'm very fascinated by ancient Greek athletics, the different contests, their rules, the celebrated athletes, and so forth. For now, just know that the Olympic Games have been founded, and Olympia was an important Panhellenic sanctuary. Another important Panhellenic sanctuary, this one to Apollo and Artemis, was found on the island of Delos, which is located in the center of the Cyclades. By the time of the Odyssey, the island was already famous as the birthplace of the twin gods Apollo and Artemis. When their mother Leto was pregnant with them, she searched for a place to give birth. 
But Hera, angered over another of Zeus's infidelities, caused all lands to shun her. So Zeus calls upon his brother, Poseidon, to create an island. And with a thrust of his trident, up pops Delos, where Leto gave birth to the twin deities. Delos was initially colonized in the mid-10th century BC, and became a religious pilgrimage for the Ionians, before eventually acquiring Pan-Hellenic significance in the 8th century BC. The Greeks seldom undertook important matters without first consulting the oracle at Delphi in central Greece. In Greek mythology, Delphi was where the god Apollo had slain the serpent Python and then established his sanctuary, as well as being the location of the Omphalos, the navel of the earth. If you recall from episode 2, the Omphalos was the rock that Rhea swapped out for Zeus and fed to Kronos. After Zeus overthrew his father, he sent two eagles flying from the eastern and western extremities of the world at the same speed. Where they met, he placed the Amphalos to mark off the center of the world. A sanctuary was dedicated there to Gaia, or Mother Earth, and Demeter, the goddess of agriculture. A serpent named Python lived there to protect the Amphalos. Thus, in order to claim the area for himself, Apollo had to slay Python. Some legends say he did so because Python had attempted to rape Leto while she was pregnant with Apollo and his sister, and thus it was revenge. In any event, Python was Gaia's son, and thus Apollo had to cleanse himself of the murder afterwards. So he became a slave to King Admatus of this area for eight years, doing menial labor. Afterwards, he established his sanctuary there. The Homeric hymn to Apollo recalls that the ancient name of this site had been Chrysa, and then was named Delphi, since one of Apollo's epithets was Delphinios, or dolphin. He was worshipped in this manner since he swam to this area as a dolphin. In any event, the sanctuary of Apollo sits halfway up Mount Parnassus, overlooking the coastal plain to the south and the valley of Phocis. The priestess who gave the oracles of Apollo was called the Pythia, named after a python. She was required to be an older peasant woman, native to the region, who had lived a pure life. A spring flowed toward the temple, but disappeared underneath, creating a crevice that emitted vapors. According to legend, when Apollo slew Python, its body fell into this fissure, and fumes arose from its decomposing body. In any event, it was from these that the Pythia supposedly gained her famous powers of prophecy. She sat upon a high tripod over the fissure in the temple of Apollo and inhaled what some geologists have determined to be ethylene gas. The Pythia also chewed oleander leaves and inhaled its smoke, a symptom of which could be epilepsy. Some have suggested that the Omphalo stone was the reason for the intoxicating vapors. Whatever the cause, she would fall into a trance allowing Apollo to possess her spirit and speak to her. She then prophesied the will of the god in a form of ecstatic speech, which was then translated by the priests of the temple into spoken Greek. The Pythia's response was very riddle-like, requiring interpretation by whoever asked. The oracles must have been right the majority of the time, though, because Delphi was so popular and people spent a lot of money giving dedications to the temple and time traveling there. The lines were always very long, so people bribed the priests or dedicated something to get up front. One theory is that the priests had a network of spies throughout the known world 
in order to be informed of all that was happening. Furthermore, they must have talked extensively to the various people who came from all over and soaked up everything, making Delphi the hub for information in the Mediterranean world. However, most of what was asked probably required a yes or no answer. Despite its relatively remote location, by the late 8th century BC, Delphi had already become the recipient of large numbers of votive offerings from across the Greek mainland in the form of pottery and bronze tripods. The implication is that it was during this period that the oracle became more widely consulted in matters of Greek politics, particularly matters where other local oracles might not be considered impartial. One interpretation of Delphi's importance to the archaic Greeks was in its function of validating community decisions, particularly those involving the division or weakening of civic powers, which might expect to meet resistance from entrenched elites. For instance, founding a colony, implanting a new series of laws, taking actions that might result in conflict with neighbors, and sending troublesome groups to exile, all benefited from having the stamp of approval from Delphi. By the late 6th century BC, the oracle was also respected by the Greek-influenced countries around the periphery of the Greek world, such as Lydia, Caria, and even Egypt. The oracle was also known to the early Romans. For instance, Rome's seventh and last king, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, after witnessing a snake near his palace, sent a delegation including two of his sons to consult the oracle. The site of Dodona, in Epirus, in northwestern Greece, is considered the oldest Hellenic oracle, dating to the Late Bronze Age. There is some evidence of an early cult to a fertility Mother Earth goddess, which is consistent with Hesiod's description of a great goddess who fed her worshippers roasted acorns, and a scene on a Mycenaean gold ring excavated at the site. Bronze weapons and pottery finds further indicate Dodona was inhabited in Mycenaean times. Evidence of activity at Dodona during the Dark Age is scanty, though, but there is a resumption of contact during the 8th century BC, with the presence of bronze tripods as votive offerings. There are many more Illyrian dedications and objects than from the southern Greeks, however, and it is likely that Dodona was a religious center mainly for the northern tribes, until the 7th century BC, at which point it became important for the southern Greeks, too. The oracle at Dodona would be considered second only to the oracle at Delphi in terms of prestige. According to Herodotus, the oracle was founded when two doves flew from Thebes in Egypt. One dove settled in Libya to found the sanctuary of Zeus Amun, and the other settled in an oak tree at Dodona, proclaiming a sanctuary to Zeus to be built there. According to Plutarch, the worship of Zeus at Dodona was set up by Deucalion and Pyrrha, presumably after the flood. The oracle was visited by notable heroes, such as Jason, who was told by Hera to place a protective branch from the sacred oak tree on the prow of his ship, the Argo, before he set off on a search for the Golden Fleece. In the Iliad, Achilles called on the help of Zeus Dodonian during the Trojan War in order to protect Patrocles in his fight against Hector. In the Odyssey, Odysseus also consults the oracle to discover if he should return to Ithaca as himself or in disguise. Traditionally, Zeus answered questions from pilgrims via the rustling of leaves or doves in his sacred oak tree, which was encircled with bronze tripod cauldrons, fragments of which survive. 
The bronze tripods all touched and so could create a circle of sound which rang continuously, both protecting the site from evil and providing another source of Zeus's communication with humanity. Amongst the Greeks, the ringing sound the tripods produced gave rise to the expression, a Dodonian chatterbox. The sanctuary was maintained by an order of priests, known as the Seloi, who were known to sleep on the ground and had unwashed feet so that they might more directly draw their power from the earth. From the 5th century BC onward, three priestesses guarded the oracle, later to be known as the Three Pleiades, which means doves, and who interpreted it and passed on the gods' responses in a state of trance, as at Delphi. But unlike at Delphi, where the oracle was often consulted on important matters of state, the oracle at Dodona was typically used to settle more private matters. Believers would write their question on a tablet, and they received a simple yes or no in response. Closely related to Panhellenism, around 750 BC, the Greeks became interested in their heroic Bronze Age past, as numerous ancient tombs that had been ignored throughout the Dark Age began to receive votive offerings an indication that their anonymous inhabitants were now being worshipped as heroes. Other kinds of hero cults came into being during the late 8th century BC. They were celebrated not at graves, but at new shrines set up to honor and worship the legendary heroic figures. For example, the precincts sacred to Agamemnon at Mycenae, and to Menelaus and Helen near Sparta. The motivation behind hero cults was the belief that the great men and women of the heroic age had power and death to protect and to help them. Like gods, they were given animal sacrifices and other divine honors, though on a smaller scale. Wealthy Greeks of the late 8th century BC, most notably in Attica, Euboea, and Cyprus, also tried to connect to their ancestors through heroic-style burials which resembled the funerals in Homer. As in the funeral of Patrocles in the Iliad, the corpse were cremated, the bones were put in a bronze urn, weapons were placed in the grave, and horses were occasionally sacrificed. Last episode, we talked about craters and amphorae being used as ostentatious grave markers at Athens for the wealthy. There is additional evidence from Athens that wealthy families had begun to group their graves in enclosures that not only held contemporary graves, but also took in Mycenaean graves, as if to convert the inhabitants of the ancient burials into family ancestors. All of this suggests that the leading families were proclaiming descent from the heroes of old. As the 8th century BC progressed, in addition to these economic and cultural changes that were happening, Social and political developments were taking place that would define the next several centuries of Greece's history. Politically, Greece began to move away from a Dark Age society with scattered small villages to centralized city-states called the polis. Socially, the already low amount of arable land was becoming scarcer in Greece thanks to an increase in population, and this would become a serious point of tension between those who had and those who had not. Ultimately, we see the displacement of the Homeric Basileus in favor of the rise of an oligarchy. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 11, From Oikos to Polis. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely.
Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, The First Delphic Hymn to Apollo, from his album, The Ancient Greek Lyre. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.